Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Ah, we're back. (laughs) Getting back on air is uh, sometimes traumatic. (laughs) So... Uh, this is the Living Free Show on 3CR on Community Radio, uh, 855 kilohertz on your AM dial. Hi, I'm Bill, and I'd like to pay my respects to the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, traditional owners of the land from which 3CR transmits people-powered radio. Each week on the Living Free Show, we showcase one of the 12-step programs that assist recovery from drugs, alcohol, gambling and food addictions. Our guests share their recovery story, and highlight that shared experience saves lives. Today I'd like to welcome David to the 3CR studio. Hi David. Hey Bill, how are you? Uh, David's an alcoholic and he's recovering with the help of Alcoholics Anonymous and he's uh, he's been on the show before, back in early 2018, so we'll catch up a bit on his story since then. Uh, but Dave, usually we start talking about growing up and the things that influenced you mm-hmm. and what, um, what, what things you thought were important that, uh, I guess, changed the direction of your life to have you end up becoming an alcoholic. Okay, cool. Um, well, I'm not really sure if I believe in the genetic disposition of alcoholism. Um, I don't think there's been enough study on it. There's certainly been you know, a bit of study about the chemistry and that in the brain. But um, for me, a lot uh, was growing up. I grew up in Mount Waverley. Uh, my father was uh, the general manager of the warehouse of a company. Um, so that meant he sort of crossed the line between working class and white collar. He straddled the line. But his father was definitely hard working class Welshman, coal miner, uh, worked up in New South Wales. And um, so, um, look, the main thing is, I think, is that parents need to be there for their kids and to try different things. Um, my father was, you know, he did the best he could do. Um, he, you know, you don't get a manual when you have kids. Uh, mum was stay-at-home mum and, uh, and dad was disappeared before I got out of bed in the morning. Got home at around six o'clock and then drank until dinner time, ate his dinner and went to bed. So... Uh, the other thing is that he came from New South Wales, so AFL he considered not a very cool game, um, and he also had um, a predisposition of, like I said, working class and all that sort of thing, must have been from his childhood, and he saw cricket as a school tie thing. So I wasn't encouraged into any sporting, like, although he was a great sportsman in his time, there's a lot of medals and he was a great sportsman. I wasn't helped along in sport, and I really believe that that's a big thing with kids, um, just to give them a sense of character. And so I wasn't very good at sport at school, but it doesn't help that I wasn't taken to training and, and trained as a little kid and all that sort of thing. So what I ended up was the kid on the sideline that was slinging mud and eventually found uh, marijuana and, and alcohol um, and those other kids that were sidelined to sporting and or 
um, higher education because I wasn't a, a great genius in school either. So I drifted into that area and found other other kids of my my niche and um, alcohol and drugs was that was our that's what we were good at. Yeah, <laughs> you know I um I was very good at what I did from an early age and I got. You know, at 14, when I took a serious drink, like bought alcohol um, and went to a party, on that night, I got a big bunch of mates, a girlfriend, and a reputation. Right. And why would I put that down? Yeah. 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 So did you feel that you were different from the start? Yes. I, I do. I, I, <laughs> it's hard. I don't believe in an alcoholic personality. And that's only because then it makes it smaller for people to walk through the doors. I like to concentrate on um, the allergy of, of alcoholism. Um, but I did have that uh, feeling of living in a bubble, different than others. Um, one particular vivid memory is being at uh, primary school and I'm standing on the field and um, I'm with a kid that I don't particularly like, but... <laughs> I don't have a lot of friends. I don't fit in that well. And he's digging in the dirt. And I look up and I look around the school. And I'm probably only six or seven at the time. And I look around the school and I think, what is this all about? Why am I here? And that's a really vivid, vivid, burnt-in memory in my memory. That it just didn't make sense to me that what was the purpose of all this. Um, and, a, and an incredible feeling of, lon of loneliness. But not small. I felt huge, but lonely. Yeah. So, and um, alcohol definitely um, broke down that barrier. But I think that does it for everyone. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's just yeah. I have that chemical difference that yeah. When I take one, I keep going. Yeah. Uh, most alcoholics have that feeling of isolation and feeling different, and alcohol alleviates that. Yeah. So, how old were you when you? Had your first drink. Um, so I grew up in a, in a household that mum sat at, on the couch. So if she got her, everything done. Uh, she was rewarded to be able to put the car in the garage and turn on the midday television with a glass of wine. And so my, my memories of mum is uh, sitting on the couch with a glass of white wine, a glass of water and a packet of Beck's powders on the table. And that continued all night till she went to bed. Now... Did she ever act out or did she ever do anything that would ask would would warrant her to change? No. Is she an alcoholic? I don't know. Dad Dad didn't Dad had to have a drink because life was too hard, but he didn't seem to have the craving of like once dinner was served, any beer in the bottle got poured down the sink and you weren't allowed to have another beer. So he was making rules around alcohol, um, you know, which normal people probably wouldn't. Um, so I don't remember my first drink because I think alcohol was always there. I was always being given a sip by uncles or whatever. Um, one burnt-in memory is being in my primary school uniform, standing in front of the cabinet, taking a swig of, of whiskey and thinking to myself, I need this because it's going to be a hard day today. And again, I would have been little. But like I said, on, I was around 14 when I actually got alcohol for the purpose of drinking in a social situation. And like I said, that, that night I slept with, the, I didn't have sex. I slept with a girl all night. She was my new girlfriend. I had about 10 new mates that were all really close. And when I got to school, all I could talk about was how funny David was. So, 
and I just kept going from there. Yeah, it's mm. very reinforcing, isn't it? Having oh, yeah, that, yeah, Having absolutely. that sort of feedback. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, so did your parents know about your drink? Did oh, they, yeah. Did they yeah. care? I was absolutely disgraceful. I was disgustingly drunk. Um, so, oh, look, you know, I, I picked up, uh, like I said, I didn't know about alcohol uh, when I've picked up. Marijuana, my story is both drugs and alcohol. I do a little bit of NA um, as well. And um, I try to keep them separated as best I could according to traditions with the 12-step fellowships. So, um, but... Um, I do know at 14, I remember having my first bong and uh, collapsing and it being a very big psychic change and finding a brand new group of people. Um, From 14 to 18, I smoked and drank all the time, like probably didn't Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday when I went back to school. But by Thursday, Friday, I was starting off again and all weekend I was. So it'd be a bunch of mates scraping together. Like marijuana was very cheap in those days, it was six dollars or so. You'd scrape it together and get some, you know, get it together and and party on in some someone older's car or upper park or something. So by eighteen, I was I was mad. Um, I my parents went away and I tried to commit suicide. I took every pill that was in the house, um, and it's actually a miracle that I'm alive because my parents were in New South Wales visiting grandparents and weren't supposed to be back for three or four days. And for some reason, they came home that night, flew into Melbourne that night and found me on the floor and I was taken to hospital and spent three months in La Rundle, And that was at 18. So before that, 14 to 18, it was kind of hidden and not real bad, but all of a sudden there was a big problem. Then 18 to 21, I basically sat on a couch, uh, junked up on um, psychiatric medication, uh, not diagnosed as an alcoholic. Uh, just diagnosed as uh, schizophrenic or bipolar or whatever it was. And for those three years, I drank daily in the home and got at times disgustingly drunk where I fought with my father. Um, I'm not sure. I can't remember. They never told me if I actually hit my mother, but I definitely pushed her over. I bruised her. Um, there was a lot of tears. There was a lot of screaming, a lot of yelling. It was it was violent, destructive and Really, my only thought was if these people would leave me alone and let me drink the way I want to drink, there wouldn't be problems. And that was the mindset at the time. But I was my behaviour was out of control, way mm. out of control. But not being diagnosed with alcoholism or drug addiction or anything, just psychiatric, they thought if you just keep pumping medication into him, it'll fix the problem. And uh, it didn't. Yeah, it, it's not surprising, is it, in real terms? Because basically you're medicating... On multiple things. Well, if you don't have the disease, the medication doesn't work. (laughs) So it doesn't matter how much haloperidol you put in someone. They might not be able to walk in a straight line, Mm. but it doesn't change their thinking because it's it's not that type of thinking that's the problem. Mine was alcoholic thinking. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So what about your friends at that time? Was that a difficult time for you? Yeah, when I... um, So coming up to 18, because I was so mad... uh, uh, I was doing all right, but the the guys that I really um, really loved, um, those who were drinking, you know, football clubs, cricket clubs, and drinking with with a reasonable amount of dignity, you know, they were getting they were getting hammered at times and doing stupid things like everybody does when they get drunk. But they 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 began to not turn up, and I began not to be invited because um, my behaviour was disgraceful. 
And um, so I got left with um, people who would accept my behaviour, which I know today were probably other drug addicts and alcoholics at the time when they were 17, 18. One of them went to jail a year later than that. Um, We ended up only a very small group of three or four guys that would tolerate behaviour. And those four guys, when I turned 18 and went a bit mad, um, they wouldn't tolerate my behaviour either. And I was cast out of that group, so I was completely alone. But uh, I burnt my bridges from 14 to 18, and by 18 I was alone. Yeah, I'd burnt everyone. Yeah. yeah. So how did that make you feel, just being that isolated? Uh, well, the madness didn't help because I was suffering from um, drug-induced psychosis um, from the marijuana. Um, so I was justifying everything in a mythological fantasy way. Um, I was better off. Um, they were better off without me, and I'd be dead soon anyway, so it didn't really matter. I had this uh, overwhelming feeling that I would die. Yeah. And I had all these fantasies, you know, Jimi Hendrix and Jim Morrison and all that, and I'll go out in a blaze of glory, and it won't bother anyone because I won't be around anyway, and I can do what I like because I don't have a future. It was a a strange fixation. Yeah. So how did you come out of that? To be completely honest? Yeah. um, Amphetamines. Oh, okay. (laughs) Um. My amphetamine use was a very good uh, way of controlling my alcoholism because I could drink the way that I wanted to drink and I didn't get the effects of the destructive effects of alcohol uh, because I could, I don't know if you know, if you use a lot of amphetamines, you don't get as drunk even though you uh, drink as much as you, as much as you want. Um, and with the craving of alcohol, I was just drink, 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 but you don't get sloppy, emotions don't change and all that. You stay on a steady. Of course, you end up with a brand new set of problems, which is crime, dumpster diving and, and all the things that come with it. Um, I also picked up my now wife um, and um, she was 17, I was 21. So it was 18 to 21 that I sat in the chair. Uh, then I decided I needed to do something, started going to the pub, um, as you do, and... Um, Met a guy and he said, hey, listen, if you have this magical white powder, all those problems with alcohol will disappear. And it did. And um, as I said, I got a new set of problems. Uh, but I picked up my wife at the time. She was 17, I was 21. And we went on a wild ride for about eight, nine years on amphetamines. And then um, we quit together, uh, basically by changing address, burning all the black books, not, not having a phone. There was no mobile phones in those times. Uh, she's an addict, but not an alcoholic, so she didn't go on and have a problem with alcohol. But once I put down the amphetamines, I kept drinking. And within four or five years, I was back to where I was when I was 18, 19, disgustingly drunk all the time and violent and, yeah, destructive. Okay. Yeah. Uh, well, listen, we might take a short break there. Throughout the month of June, we'll be asking you, the listener, to support radical, community-owned media during our Radiothon. We'll be taking donations online, over the phone and in the station to help keep us going for another year. Independent community media is more important than ever, and we need your support to power community radio. The 3CR Radiothon kicks off in June. To donate, go to 3cr.org.au, call the station on 03 or drop in at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy during business hours. 3CR Community Powered Radio. Accent Women. 
it seems so obvious to me that if you live in a in a completely violent um, cultural milieu, that it's going to translate into every aspect of women's lives. Accent women. What's a border? They don't see it like a big wall right along the. How can people live ordinary lives when they're living in such an extraordinary situation where there are two, where there are armies there and terrorists there, such conflict every single day of their lives? Accent women. A show by and about women from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds. On Community Radio 3CR. Uh, this is the Living Free Show on 3CR, 855 kilohertz on your AM dial and 3CR on digital radio. Uh, if you'd like to listen to one of our many podcasts, uh, then you can find us on your preferred podcast platform or just Google 3CR Living Free and check out our podcasts on our website. Uh, you can also contact us via 3CR on 03 9419 8377. Uh, email us at 3 at com, or we're on Twitter as 3CR Living Free. Uh, as you heard, the Radiothon is coming up. And so we'd love you to support Living Free and help us stay on air for another year. And later I'll be um, providing details on how donation, any donations you make in the next week will be matched. Um, and so that matching will be from the 20th to the 27th of May. And I'll play that promo a little bit later. Uh, today I'm talking with David and we're talking about recovery from alcoholism with the help of Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, but first... Dave, um, you mentioned um, when you met your wife, you went on a, about a nine-year um, amphetamine. Um, you could call it a binge because it was daily. <laughs> yeah, 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 um, yeah. Journey, I guess I was going to say. Yeah. Uh, journey, yeah. And um, so, do you want to talk a bit, a bit about that and what it's, how, I guess, what it was like and how, how different it was to your al- your alcoholism, if you like. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, so. The reason I started using amphetamines was because the alcoholism, the the alcohol use was always dirty, uh, violent. Um, I couldn't control my emotions. I, I you know, it's, and this is what happened when I came into AA. I was back there, um, but I was at the point I couldn't control it. I didn't know if I was going to be Arthur or Martha when I picked up a drink, so I could not control and enjoy my drinking at the same time. But I needed something to get out of my head. You know, I couldn't. I couldn't live in in David's body. So when I was introduced um, to, to to the amphetamines or speed, as it was called in those days, um, what it did was it took all thoughts out of my head. It, um, that's what it does. You know, it um, elevates me and elevates you, and and pretty much you just don't think. You're just moving forward continuously all the time. So it was um, it was a great remedy for the for the for the um, psychiatric problems that I was having at the time. Uh, I'd stopped using the marijuana, so the the um, psychosis was starting to disappear and all that. And, and I started to get more uh, new friendships and stuff in the pub. And, um, you know, my, my bright social self came back with the help of amphetamines to break down that social barrier. And again, I was, uh, I was getting girlfriends and... Um, I was uh, the funny guy in, at the place and I had, you know, 100 mates and everywhere I went I was known and I had a big reputation all over again. And um, But then, you know, um, met Heather and then, that's my wife, sorry, I met Heather and then uh, we moved in together and then it became using more at home. 
and I uh, just became a daily drudge uh, and and um, just you know an addiction of um, a daily addiction of using because if I didn't use, I just felt terrible um, in my own skin. So I needed to use as much as I could to be in this fantasy fantasy land or the way the drug affected me and, and made me feel good and confident about myself and about the world around me. Yeah. Um, so, so what was it like? Um, I think you said your, your partner was also using drugs at the time. Yeah. So what's it like with two people using drugs? So my wife um, does suffer from um, schizophrenia and bipolar. It's called schizoaffective and... Uh, you wouldn't believe that um, speed actually gets rid of all those symptoms. Oh, right. So, you know, if, if someone's going to get addicted to it, you know, it's pretty pretty easy. And all of a sudden, this, um, you know, this young young woman that had lived in her bedroom for years and was terrified to go out and was paranoid about everything and having, you know, having problems, all of a sudden could do and do whatever she wanted. You know, it was yeah. like... Um, Superman in the phone box, and you know, so we 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 went out. Um, but of course, because now we're playing with an illegal substance, we're starting to play with criminals, and not just people who um, have got a problem because they're an addict or an alcoholic, but people who are just out to destroy lives and and make money. You know, that, yeah. that's their prime purpose is is to make money. Yeah, and <laughs> uh, and you know, whoever gets in the way, stuff you. Just bad luck, yeah. So you know, from alcoholism, which is you bite from the bottle shop, to a new, it's it's a, it's a new extreme, and of course, new problems uh, began. Um, you know, um, fraud charges at one time. I I didn't have to do prison time, but that's more about being uh, white and middle class. I think um, I was afforded good lawyers, even through legal. You know, free legal. I had good lawyers. Uh, I was able to get letters from psychiatrists and psychologists. I was able to weasel my way out of it, yeah. you know. And for many other people, they probably wouldn't have, and they they wouldn't be sitting here today because it would have been a different life, you know, if, after doing time. Um, so, so it just got to the point. And the the final straw was uh, a guy put a you know, and I'd had guns in the house, and I had guns pointed at me and all that. But the final straw was a guy put a knife to my throat and said, "We've already dug your grave." Uh, you need to come up with a thousand bucks that you owe, and so I ran home to mummy and daddy, <laughs> and mummy and daddy paid the bill. And um, again, lucky I'm white, middle class. I had parents that accepted me back and, and were able to afford me that money, and um, and I paid them. And and as I said before, I moved into a house, no phone, no little black book, no people. Uh, parents had control of the money, paid the rent, gave us only enough for food and that sort of thing, and and we were able to break. Not break the addiction, but break the tie. You've still got to go look for it. It's not like alcohol where it's next door. Yeah. You actually have to attempt to go look for it. Um, and that, that got us out of that problem. As I said, Heather went back to having severe psychiatric problems because she didn't have that crutch. I went back to drinking. And um, funny, I, I was able to drink like a normal person for probably about three years. Now, I don't know if that's having a break from alcohol for so long, whatever it was, but um, it gradually became a problem again over the next 10 years until I got into AA where at the end of it, I was right back where I was when I was 18, 19, daily drunk, highly violent, unable to control my emotions, destructive. And I, I was right back where I'd started. Yeah. yeah. So what impacted... Uh, were you married by that stage? 
Ah, uh, yeah. 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 So what impact did that have on your wife? Your... Uh, violent with Heather. Yeah. Um, not as much with my hands, but with my thoughts and feelings and words. Um, yeah, highly destructive um, domestic violence in words. Um, I, I did hit her and I did push her around. Um, more on the amphetamines, I'm trying to justify it, more on the amphetamines than the alcohol. Um, but at the end, I still just it was just disgusting. Um, I, don't, I don't even know why Heather stayed with me, but she did. Yeah, yeah. often people don't have much choice. No. No, um, no. Yeah. And uh, I would have bullied her and told her she couldn't make it without me, all those characteristics of the... Um, Denigration. Rapid alcoholic. Yeah. 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 Yep. I've, <laughs> I've heard them all. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They're not pretty. Um, it, it sort of makes you think that, you know, a lot of, um, a lot of the social problems we have are related to drugs and alcohol. Mm-hmm. And if people did get, you know, it did address their problems, then we'd, probably have a safer society. It'd be safer for them and safer for other people in real terms. One hundred percent. Yeah. If you were if you were sentenced to re if you were sentenced to rehab and not prison, yeah. I'm sure it would help a lot. If there was a lot more money in, in rehab, if they just treated it as an illness. Yeah. yeah. Um I'm I'm quite interested in the Portuguese experiment. Uh my mate was over there and his whole attitude towards drugs and alcohol was changed. Um he he was in Portugal for about six weeks. And I think it's in Portugal is decriminalised. Mm. Uh, so you can do whatever you like, but if you break society's rules, you get sentenced to rehabilitation, not to prison. Yeah. So you're separated from from criminals, um, and you're given a chance to to clean up and get well. Yeah, I, I think that separation is very important. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, all you do is teach someone new crimes. So. Yeah, or yeah. learn them. Yeah, or learn them. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, yes, <laughs> crazy. Um, so. What was the thing that caused you to think, I've got to change, or it's got to change? So originally it was um, parent, well, by then my mum had passed away. I was, uh, so there was my dad and my wife. There's, I don't have a big family. My, um, and um, no cousins, no aunties, no, nothing like that. There's just, so there was just me, my dad, and my wife and her family. Um, I kept a lot of that away from her family, although she, they knew about it but I didn't bring it into their property. Uh, so when I had... So basically, when, my, when I picked up a drink, I ended up in hospital or police station. That was what happened when I picked up a drink. Yep. Two, two things happened. Yep. Um, so they, they said, you have to stop. And um, I saw an advertisement for Odyssey House on the radio or something like that. Uh, talked to Odyssey House, talked about how to get in. It was a six-week wait at the time, and they said, why don't you try Alcoholics Anonymous while you're waiting? So that was my introduction to Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, I went along. I went to ID meetings uh, where the people get up, tell their story. It's a bit like um, uh, old, old Southern Baptist. You tell, you tell how, how far the devil had taken you, and then you say, AA saved me, hallelujah. And um, and the stories the stories did get me in. You know, I got that step one. I identified with other alcoholics and identified that I could not drink and be happy. I went to Odyssey House and, and nothing against Odyssey House, but it didn't work for me. Um, and I left. I left after four months, and um, I drank for another three years, and it was worse again. And this time it was worse on knowledge. I didn't go back to AA. 
Um, and I was actually doing crazy things. Like I'd go to the pub and I'd tell the bouncers, hey, listen, I'm an alcoholic. I'm going to get really disgusting tonight. Can you not punch me in the face? Because I hate having black eyes and trying to... And they go, but you seem such a nice guy. I said, give me three hours, mate. Yeah. You know? And um, so I was drinking on, on the identification of step one. Um, what happened was my last drink was nothing extraordinary, but I woke up in a urine-soaked uh, doona in front of the heater. The wife was gone. All the doors were open. There were knives everywhere. And um, it just it happened again. And the night before, when I drank, when I picked up a drink, I said, I will be very careful not to get drunk again. I'd done that a thousand times. Um, but this time I'd actually lived through it. I, I'd seen myself say, don't turn the television on, turn the telly on, don't turn the music on, turn the, don't go to the pub. I went to the pub, don't buy a bottle of red. I bought, so what I actually saw was, in a third sense, I saw an, yeah. an active alcoholic. And that day I realized that I am always going to drink. Not that one day I'll stop or that I want to stop. I actually saw that day that I'm always going to drink and I'm always going to have these problems in my life. And I remembered AA and I rang the office that day and I went back that night and I haven't drunk since that day. That's good. Yeah. That's a good That's story. That's 14 years ago now. Yeah. Too, so, okay. Yeah. Uh, well, so we might take another short break there. We've been striking on and off since the 1st of November. We're here with a lot of other kids from Castlemaine. From the school strike for climate and trade union rallies to Invasion Day protests and public housing vigils, 3CR's outside broadcasts bring the voices of dissent from the streets onto Melbourne radio. Currently, this can involve crouching on the ground at a rally with a laptop and a mic trying to capture people's voices for broadcast. Your donation will enable us to purchase much-needed equipment to avoid dropouts and delays and provide training for our outside broadcast volunteers. Help get us off the ground so we can get the word out to you. And for one week only, ethicaljobs.com.au will double every donation up to the value of $5,000. Just go to 3cr.org.au before May 27th and click the donate button to help get us off the ground. Slavery is back. Welcome to a place where private business profit from a captive labour force, yet pennies are spent on medical services to a population in which the Indigenous, the poor and the mentally ill are overrepresented. Where isolation, humiliation and degradation are facts of life. Welcome to prison. It depends who's telling the story, I suppose. The prisoners would have one view. The people who work in the prison system would have another. And I think it's up to people to decide uh, you know, where, where the truth is. Give government propaganda and the media spin doctors the flick. And check out Doin' Time for news, views and tunes on prison issues from Guantanamo Bay to Christmas Island to prisons and detention centres everywhere. Every Monday at 4pm on your community radio, 3CR. We are still fired up and we're still talking about revolution. This is the Living Free Show on 3CR, on digital radio, live streaming, 
on 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming. And today I'm talking with David uh, about recovering from alcoholism with the help of Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, so Dave, um, before the break, uh, we were talking about taking your last drink and realizing that you had to do something about your life. Mm. So, and you mentioned going back to AA. So was it difficult to walk back into AA after three years of drinking? I really can't look to be honest I really can't remember but the good thing is that I'd been to a couple of meetings you know I'd been I'd been going to the same two meetings three years earlier for about five weeks so the best part about AA is um, I walked back in the doors and there were the same three or four blokes and women that had been there before and um, and they remembered me you know which is which is one of the great parts of the fellowship is the fellowship and um you know, they just said, oh, how's it going, you know? You're looking not so well. <laughs> Good to be back. And, um, <clears throat> but um, the lucky thing was that I met I met a young fellow there um, and um, and he became my first sponsor uh, in that he, he didn't take me through the steps, but he came the bridge between me and AA. And he had um, six or seven years of experience in AA and knew lots more about AA and a lot more about meetings. And he said, Dave, you know, if you want to, if you want to get serious about this, I'll, I'll take you into some of the recovery meetings in the city where we study the big book, we study the 12 steps, we do the 12 steps, and, and, um, and we do service, and, and we become a, a working part of Alcoholics Anonymous. And so that bridge expanded my idea of what Alcoholics Anonymous was. Yeah. Yeah, uh, it's interesting to to hear the sponsorship talked about as a bridge because a lot of people see it as somebody to tell them what to do. Yeah. When really that's not what alcoholics need or not what anybody needs really. Yeah, I've I've never had a sponsor that's told me what to do. Mm. Um only if I ring up and ask. Um yeah. my idea is <clears throat> that a sponsor is someone who's uh, done this before. Um I tried to do the 12 steps by myself. Because being the intellectual that I did, I read the big book and it said nothing about sponsors and it showed you how to take the 12 steps if it was delivered to you in the mail, which of course it was in the 40s and people in country towns just followed the steps, um, found someone to share their fifth with and got sober, started a group and that's how we, we got bigger. So I tried to and then I got to to step three, step four and realized I need someone who's done this before who can show me how to efficiently do, take these steps. So then I reached out and looked for, I'm now inverting my fingers, yeah. a sponsor. <clears throat> yeah. 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 I guess a, a step sponsor is, um, it's really important for your growth and for your development and for your understanding yourself and, and realising that you're not much different to everybody else. That's, I needed someone who had a friendly ear, wasn't going to judge, and had taken these steps in their life before, so they knew what they were talking about. As I've grown up, I've had service sponsors, um, which is really... Look, I've had older sober members guide me. Yeah. You know, but the original one, for someone to do my fifth step with that I trusted and all that, that was my first original... Well, no, my first original sponsor was a bridge. Yeah. And he was... He's still one of my best friends today. Um, and... Um, yeah, without him, I wouldn't have experienced the the great garden of AA. I would have thought that whatever meeting I was going to at the time, that's what AA that's was, yeah. and it's not. It's there's so much, mm. so so much more. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, it's the people. I guess it's people you meet in service who are who are trying to help other people. Mm. Uh, very enthusiastic, and they're they're very likable. Yeah, um, yeah, people. yeah. yeah. Um, Some of them can get over the top. I get unbearable at times. <laughs> people go, Dave, can you step away, please? You know, I don't want to hear about, you know, what what such and such committee's doing at the <laughs> moment, or what the area's doing, or what the. Um, there's a bit of a, a saying in AI. I don't want. I don't want to get involved in the politics, and I think that's a bit sad because there's nobody outside the triangle. We have to do it ourselves. We don't rely on anybody else. And mm. it, and if we're <laughs> one fellowship, it's not politics because politics tells you there's two sides and there and there's only one side. So you know, but everybody's built for different things. I know some of my friends might have ten or twelve sponsees. That's just what they're good at. Yeah, I'm good at committees. I'm good at that sort of thing. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. I heard I heard an AA say that um, politics is people. That everybody's you know it, the thing about politics is in in a fellowship is trying to convince others to be on your side mm. instead of trying to convince others it's a good idea. Yeah, and for them to think it's a good idea, not be on your side. Yeah, yeah. And, and what I found is like I've I've been in a lot of you know tit and tat wars in AA and. Um, what the biggest thing that I came to was that I have to work my steps in my traditions. So it's fine to say you have to do this, but am I doing it myself? Mm. Because the whole thing is, is if I'm pointing my finger at you, I'm pointing three back at myself. So there's no point in me arguing that you have to do something if I'm not doing it myself. Yeah. So, and then there's a lot more love in it because it's not a, yeah, yeah it's not a, a I'm not, yeah, whatever. Yeah, and and it's trying to reach the newcomer. It's that's what it's about. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, that's or the people about. who should come back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's about um, trying to trying to get them to to uh, get that first step almost immediately by identifying with that they have a problem and that we might be able to help them. Mm. I'm hoping <clears> when you come into your first meeting, you get step one and step two done. Yeah. Oh my god, I drink like you. Oh my god, my life's a mess. You people seem to have your you seem to be doing all right. How did you do it? Right now we're on step three, and you've only been in the meeting for an hour. Let's yeah, go. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think a lot of people don't really appreciate that. That coming to a meeting is step one, basically, because you've you've asked for help. That's like if you weren't powerless over alcohol, you wouldn't come to a dingy little church in Bayswater <laughs> at eight o'clock at night <laughs> <laughs> on a winter's night. <laughs> on a winter's night. So I yeah. think you've uh, you've identified there's a problem. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, so, how has AA changed your life? What it really, uh, what it's done for me is it's, okay, this might sound cliche, it's given me the peace and ease in my life that used to come with the first few drinks. It's as simple as that. So what I was looking for when I was drinking was the peace and ease that everybody gets from a couple of drinks. Mm. See, I could never get that because once I got the peace and ease, the craving took over, I got drunk, drunk people do stupid things. Um so what I always wanted in my life was the peace and ease that just a few drinks would give me so that I could ah, unwind. I have the disease of alcoholism. I can't do that. So now I'm stuck. Mm. And I think 99% of the population, if they didn't, wasn't able to have a, a drink or a whatever and calm down, they'd all be a mad raving, you know, acting like an alcoholic as well. So what, what being an Alcoholics Anonymous has done is it's given me that big group of friends that I got with my first drink. It's given me a reputation which I got from my first drink, and it's given me people to love, which I got at my first drink. But I haven't stuffed it up and lost all those people. 
So it continues on year mm. after year. They get stronger, they get stronger. And I get that. I'm able to come to a radio show and talk to someone that I may have met once. I'm able to talk to people. I'm able to go to work. I'm able to say yes. I'm able to be compassionate to my wife, who now is a lot sicker these days. Um, and we have a wonderful relationship. We fight like cats and dogs, but we have a wonderful relationship. And I'm able to be there for her and do all, all her NDIS stuff and and all that kind of thing. And then I've got you know good friends who aren't in AA, but they've never seen me drink. And 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 I get to to tell them about alcoholism and drug addiction because they've got kids growing up. And it's just it's just been a wonderful way of life. I've been able to. I went to Bali as part of the AA convention. And going to Bali, I was able to meet local people and then find out about their islands and where they live. And then I was able to use them. And I've been able to travel through Indonesia, going to places where I'm living in a village in a grass hut for three weeks. It's just, Alcoholics Anonymous has done for me what alcohol should have. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's simply yeah. what it did. Yeah. yeah. And you gave it a few years to try. It's of a, course I did, yeah. yeah. I didn't come in until I was 42. Yeah. Well, I came in at 39 or something. <laughs> but it was just a, a, a space. Uh, but when I came in at 42, and I, I'm lucky because I was thrown into the middle of it straight away. And, and I've said service was a huge part of it. Um, mm. Being on committees and having to work with other people and especially being confined by the traditions. Uh, when you have an argument with someone for an hour about Tim Tams versus mint slices... And then you have to come back a month later and pick that conversation up again. It teaches you how to deal with people. And when you go on the outside and you're not confined by the traditions, life is pretty easy. Yeah. When you can be a dictator out here and yeah. tell people what you what you need in a workplace, mm. uh, it makes life pretty easy. Yeah. 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 Uh, um, so has, has it enabled you to get closer you know recovery get closer to your family um something happened with my father that i ended up when i first got sober so anybody can get sober because yeah in my first week or something something happened with my father that i then put a restraining order against him and i never spoke to him again and uh, i went to his funeral but i never spoke to him till the day he died and that was five years of my recovery um so no, and then my sister lives in down on the peninsula, right down. She's got her own family, very close to her partner's family. So if you can understand, I don't want to talk for her, but my family was pretty, not very well. Um, his family, really, really beautiful people, and um, she's got her own life. And we talk every now and again, but she was 10 years older than me anyway. So she was gone when I was nine. So... There was only my father, my sister. They're gone. You know, I, I, I'm not an enemy of my sister. I love my sister. I love all my nephews and nieces, but I don't really have much to do with them. They're a long way away, and they got their own lives. Um, so, really, my relationship that I've recreated is is with my wife, and we're together. We've been together 35 years now, 34, 35 years. Yeah, and we've been through hell and back. So, yeah, yeah. Alcoholism certainly splits families. Oh, yeah. yeah. I, I'm one of those that believes. I've, I've had a little bit of a dabble in Al-Anon as well. And, you know, I'm definitely of the belief that of a minimum, I've affected 10 people closely. A minimum, at yeah. least 10 people. Yeah. So if I came from bigger families, the families would be riddled. 
with 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 um with the with the isms of alcoholism. Yeah. You? Yeah, I, I say often that most people don't realise that they know an alcoholic, they just don't know who it is. Mm. Um, and it's the same for people with drug addiction or gambling, that mm. they know somebody, but it, they don't know who that person is. Yeah, yeah, yeah like you, you, even if it was your, your mate from work's son, that mate's son is affecting you because it's affecting the workplace. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, it just um, it goes right through. Yeah. yeah, it does. Yeah, and it and it is really um, quite amazing when you when you find out in your group of friends people who have been affected by drugs and alcohol and gambling. Yeah, you realise that the only reason I know that is because I've got an interest in in the subject, mm. and I can, you know, you can see them or you remember them. Yeah, well, yeah. see, I don't, I don't mind breaking my anonymity. I don't I don't have a profession. Mm. Um, I'm a carer. Um, full-time carer, so I don't have bosses, and I don't. And I, besides that, I just I really don't care. It's my anonymity, and so my good friends who are not alcoholics and that they know all about it. Um, and so one particular mate in the industry, uh, building in that industry, he's had me speak to to a few workers. He's had me. He's a football coach. He's had me come in and talk to the fourteen and fifteen year olds about what can happen and how to look mm. after your friends. Um, I've got to do so much by breaking my own my own anonymity, um, and it's just wonderful that my friends trust me and and they and they see me as someone who's got that experience and can help, yeah. which is really cool. I yeah. like that. Yeah. yeah. My biggest uh, issue with um, AA has always been we we don't advertise enough through attraction. Uh, I was forty two and um, or thirty nine when I first came in, but. Never heard of Alcoholics Anonymous. I saw the signs at scout halls and I thought it was automobiles something because it was all these old men with long coats and I thought it was train tracks or... And I never heard about it. And mm. when I came in, I said, this is not happening on my watch. Yeah. And so I got involved with um, area and districts and and I, and I went to a lot of schools um, through district and I, w I want the message of um, AA and NA and Al-Anon and, and all that to get out. I want people to know that we're here. Yeah, yeah. that's why we're here. Yeah, yeah that's absolutely. What Thank you. About. Yeah, yeah, awesome. Yeah. Um, if anybody would like to find out more about Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, you can phone them on one three hundred triple two triple two, or you can go online at aa.org.au. Uh, that's about all we've got time for today. So I'd like to thank David for coming to the three CR studio and sharing his alcoholism recovery experience with us. Thank, thank you. Thank you so much, Bill. It was a pleasure. Uh, I hope you'll be able to join us again next week. Uh, when we'll feature recovery from drug addiction and we'll be joined by Nathan from Narcotics Anonymous. Uh, thanks for listening. Stay safe and stay tuned now for more Radical Radio on 3CR. And to take us out, we've got a song called Sinking Like a Stone by Liz Stringer.
sings her memory song Tells me of you moving on But in your shadow I stand strong Oh, my heart is breaking I've never been in love before As strong as this old ocean's roar It waits not for me on the shore Oh, my heart is breaking